You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Welcome to HeadX, hosted by Martin Betts. This podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector. Welcome to the higher education experience. This week's HeadX episode comes after submissions have been made to the second stage of the university's accords, the consultation around the interim report. And it um, comes at a period when consultations are open for the support amendment bill that has accompanied that accord. And for our episode today, I'm joined by a co-host in Ben Hallett, the co-CEO of Vigo. And we had a chance to, through a webinar um, between Vigo and HeadX, have a con- further conversation with our guests. So let's go straight to the introduction that Ben makes to that webinar and hear about this critically important topic as the wider consultation around reform in the university's agenda in Australia takes place straight after this message from our sponsors. Enjoying the HeadX podcast? You should check out The Thought Bubble, a podcast series where cross-disciplinary experts from all around the world share insights about emerging technologies and all the ways in which they can transform how we teach, learn, evaluate and experience higher education. Hear from Google, Meta, Holland IQ, KPMG, Duolingo and more. Find The Thought Bubble wherever you listen to your podcasts. So... Officially, we are opening up the webinar. Hello, everybody. On behalf of Vigo and HeadX, I'd like to welcome welcome you all to today's live webinar panel. Uh, The title today, a preliminary analysis of the support amendment bill and its potential implications, and of course, the accord as well. To kick things off, in the spirit of reconciliation, uh, Vigo and HeadX acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. And there are two lovely people on today's panel whom I respect very much. And I have the pleasure of introducing one of them uh, who is Martin Betts. Now, Martin founded HeadX as content and advisory services that are seeking to change higher education for good. He has experience as a Deputy Vice Chancellor of Engagement at Griffith and Executive Dean of STEM Design and Built Environment Disciplines at QUT. He is the author of two great books uh, on the new leadership agenda, which I have here. Martin gave me a signed copy in San Diego earlier this year. And uh, also the new learning economy, which outlines principles and strategies to inform the future of higher education. So welcome, Martin. Over to you, mate. Thanks very much, Ben, and great to be here with you and with Nadine and everybody on this webinar. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. And Ben, when um, when we were together in San Diego, I can remember first hearing the Vigo story and and yours and Joel's story about your your friend Tony, who had been a fellow student with you, and how the inspiration of Tony's story was really driving a commitment to what you're doing in your business to fulfil your mission, as I understand it, to give every human a world class educational opportunity which I I found really heartening first hearing it every time I hear it again now it still sounds heartening and boy (laughs) doesn't it sound relevant to where we are today and look look it's a real pleasure to have Vigo and HeadX collaborating on this event and more widely collaborating as partners. HeadX as you say in the introduction there is seeking to 
make its contribution to changing higher education for goods. My drive for that is my own personal story. I was the first in family to attend university. I was more lucky than other members of my family that didn't get that opportunity. I've spent most of my time working in the sector, being driven by that experience, a lot of commitment to fundraising and other policy changes within institutions and now sector-wide to um, to really bring that to the benefit of, of, of future learners and future students. And three years ago, when um, with Carl Treacher, I founded HEDEX, we were just naturally drawn in the best practice examples that we were reaching out to, to global examples of other leaders, other institutions, other parts of the world that similarly had that big focus on democratizing higher education, opening it up, giving the support to allow people to succeed. So it's really good to now be with both of you and all of the people joining this webinar where we all share that wider journey. And look, Ben, and I, ben you and I are really thrilled to have someone so committed and expert in this area to join this particular webinar in, in Nadine. Dr. Nadine Zakarias is the Managing Director and Founder of Equity by Design. That's a specialist consulting firm that consults in student equity strategy and program evaluation, inclusive service design. And Nadine, as we'll hear, I'm sure in the next little while, has, has held senior management roles at Swinburne, at Deakin Universities. And she's leading transformative work now in higher education to achieve a more equitable and high, higher performing sector to support an increasingly diverse student cohort and leverage the potential of individuals for the common good. Well, welcome to the webinar, Nadine. Thank you so much, Martin, for that kind of introduction and Ben for the invitation to, contrib to contribute to the webinar. It seems like we're all here for the same reasons and speaking from similar, similar values, which is fantastic. Yeah, I think so. And and aren't we doing an exciting time? I mean, the, the 2023 will forever be the year of the university's accord for, for many people. I'm sure we'll look back at a year when much changed. I can't get over how I started the year at the U Universities Australia Conference in Canberra and just feeling Jason Clare in his speech at the dinner at that event, hearing him talk at the National <laughs> Press Club, reading an interim report that got launched quite recently. I think we all expected equity to be prominent from all of those early signs, but I don't know if any of us could have hoped for such ambition and laser-like focus on equity in the specific proposals, the overall vision, and in the first steps. And look, I think the sector right now is busy debating multiple issues from maybe um, particular perspectives. There's some comments on, is this going to be a more bureaucratic and centralized and controlled sector going forward? I think there's lots of people expressing concern about where the funding will come from and will all of this happen? But some things are happening already. Five priority actions um, implemented the day or announced the day before the, the report itself with clear evidence of that. And now since the report, we also have a support amendment bill and penalties for non-support, which is a, a very obvious next step. And I, I, I guess, Nadine, in segueing to you here, I'm sure you've got much more to say about this, but what I've learned in my experience in the sector and talking to the people over the last three years in headaches is that clearly we all understand that growth in equity students is going to be of different students, more mature age students, more working students, students that might be not, not study savvy in the way, same way that some of our students in the past have been. 
students who are time poor, time inflexible, living complex lives, but maybe as all of our students will be in the future more tech savvy and more inclined to use tech in their studies. But look, they're my takes. I'm really fascinated. We'll all be fascinated about what your takes are about the Accords and and the bill more specifically. So could you tell take us through how you see that the Accord Interim Report highlighted student equity and experience, um, and then the Support Amendment Bill has now zoomed in on this particular focus of student support. What are you seeing there? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Martin. Um, and I think um, this is not me. We had um, we got a group of uh, equity leaders together the day after the report was released, and there was a real tangible excitement about the report, you know, and the fact that equity was so front and center of not only how the problem was conceived, but also how the solutions were being defined. So when you really look at, you know, how the minister came at the challenge is um, the, um, the expectation that more and more jobs in the future will re require university qualifications as well as vocational qualifications. So this is really the starting point. The estimate at the moment is that 55% of jobs by 2050 will require university qualifications. And then the argument goes that this target of university graduation rates can only be achieved by significantly increasing the numbers of students that are currently underrepresented in higher education. And so they are students from, you know, the, the national equity groups. Um, so students from regional and remote backgrounds, students from um, what we have called low SES backgrounds, but the um, minister is certainly not shying away from, you know, the language of, of people from poor backgrounds, and poverty is a core issue here, people with disability and Indigenous people. Um, so that is that is the ambition, you know, that is literally how the solution um, has been conceived of. You've already raised, Martin, that that has given rise to conversations about the feasibility of admitting significantly more students into undergraduate programs who are likely to be underprepared for higher education study. And I guess I see the, the HD support amendment bill in that light, in that it will force universities to build really robust processes and really robust support ecosystems so that they can set up for success a significantly more diverse student cohort. So what the, what the bill does is it shifts the focus in universities from students who have failed, which is our traditional approach. You know, we look at it through the lens of academic progress policies, and that is being shifted to focus on students at risk of failing and to, to take to go to that preventative element, um, you know, of supporting our students. So, you know, like what this what this support amendment bill does is it gives effect to two of the five immediate actions um, announced by the minister, as you've already raised, and that is to expand demand-driven funding arrangements to Indigenous peoples um, that are not in the region. So already this provision exists for Indigenous people in regional and remote areas. It's now extended to people in, to Indigenous people in the cities. And the second, um, you know, change that that is in the bill is to remove the 50% pass rate and the associated penalties for students that were introduced under the job ready graduates legislation. And that gets replaced with the requirement of universities to have a support for students policy. And so that will become the compliance requirement. 
um, if the bill goes through and the signs are, you know, the crossbench seems to be behind um, the changes that are being proposed. Um, and so every university needs to, to develop a support for students policy. Um, it becomes a compliance requirement. And, and you know, the fine is for non-compliance with the policy, a, the existence of the policy and the lack uh, to implement the policy. And actually, it's a good something I'd love to um, ask then, Nadine. Something that's been a little bit ambiguous for me is the fines. You know, are they applying per student? Are they applying? Is it a once off? You know, it was, you know, I think it was 60, 60 penalty points, which equates to yeah. about $18,000. The Australian reported that it was going to be per student, meaning tens of $20 million sorts of fines for each university type thing. Is mm. that how you read it as well? It's not how I read it. Um, I mean, it's it's not entirely clear, but um, the compliance requirement seems to be the existence of policy and, you know, like giving rise to the policy uh, and non-compliance is at the level of policy. That's how I read it. I mean, the, the initial one will be, you know, does the policy exist, yes or no? But then there's ongoing reporting requirements, you know, towards, you know, or, or to the to the department, I assume. And, um, I don't know. Potentially, it is at the student level. It would it would have a lot more bite if it was at the at the per student level than it is at the you know do you have policy or not and do you comply with your policy or not. Um, but that is in in my reading of the text, it's not clear. I, I mean, you know, hindsight is a fascinating thing once you dig into it, right? And so my little nerd came out as I was preparing for this webinar. Um, but the the um, coalition, the, so the, the opposition has certainly criticized the government for not having good data on its hands about, you know, how many students have come up against um, the 50% pass rate um, and what the consequences of that were. So the data the minister had and talked to in his address was from a survey of universities to which 27 universities had responded. And so that has been criticized by the opposition, who of course were the people who could have put better reporting reply, uh, requirements in place when they introduced this provision with job ready graduates. So there was a little bit of a lack of curiosity, I would say, when the measures were introduced and you know that is now being turned into a bit of a political ploy, you know, um, when the shoe's on the other foot. So um, certainly the data and the reporting around that is, is going to be one challenge for the government of how they, you know, they will track this and, um, you know, what kind of reporting requirements will be put on universities. So that is an interesting mm -hmm. place to watch. And, and maybe to, uh, to pick up, I think Martin and Dean, you've done a really good job of summarizing and bringing us from the accord into the overarching of the student support uh, bill and you know where my brain really goes i'm an engineer and i've thought a lot about technology around the, the how and the what of student support my brain really zooms in on the the requirements that are being you know loosely talked about when it comes to what services need to be provided how are those services uh delivered and then how are those services reported and you know then the what happens on the on the back end if, if there's non-compliance and for me, what I really, the bill as it's currently put out, we are we are awaiting a, uh, a discussion paper from uh, Jason Clare's office. He did say it was supposed to come out last week. I haven't seen it yet. Um, the bill did get pushed up to the Senate committee. So that might be, maybe that's causing a bit of um, time lag there. Jason's speaking at the AFR conference next week. So maybe we're gonna get something there early next week, uh, but we'll see. But we are waiting on that little bit extra bit of detail. But as it currently reads, I'm seeing that there are several support services that 
the government is saying these need to exist and they need to be they need to be heavily focused on students pre census date so those services are things from um, from peer support was called out. I never thought the words peer support services would ever be mentioned in parliament. That blew my mind. Uh, <laughs> peer support, uh, acad academic development advisors, mental health services, um, targeted literacy support, targeted numeracy support, uh, academic support direct from lecturers uh, in, in their courses. There was a lot really specified there, but there was also a lot uh, hanging as well, You know, just loose references to, could this be one service? Could this be multiple services? But what I think was sort of the kicker is in the delivery of these services. I, you know, it really talks about this new way of flagging students at, at risk, not just based how we would traditionally do it, which is how, you know, are they signing into their LMS? How are they going on their, um, on their courses? That's sort of the typical way universities are doing it, but actually now, having to incorporate engagement and non-engagement and sort of quality of engagement metrics from the support services to feed into that at-risk rating. And with that at-risk rating, then responding proactively to the students and tailoring their support journey uh, towards that student to try and get them back on track. That was for me, a pretty unique thing to call out. You know, support services for the most part, I think, student support has been has evolved a little bit ad hoc across the industry it's it's sort of been something that you know each faculty and each business unit will just develop um, on their own and run on their own and from their own budget and scramble budget together that's sort of traditionally how it's been um, developed and by really good and well-meaning people but what that means is that there is, has been lots of silos across our student support services there hasn't really been a lot of deliberate and intentional thought about starting from scratch and, and, and an ecosystem uh, approach to how do these services work together? How do students, what's the journey like when they're interacting between these services? And on top of that, do we have the right tech in place to actually track what's going on here and standardize that across uh, those different services? And for me, that's probably the, the biggest kicker I think I saw in the support amendment bill. It might be because I'm quite biased about this side of the world, but I think that's gonna be one of the key challenges for universities to really work out, okay, what services do we have and not have versus what is in this bill? Do we have it, are these services playing out in the way that this, this bill is uh, mentioning, you know, uh, evidence-driven, um, targeted, one-to-one, -one, uh, personalized uh, ability at age and culture, these different specifics. And on top of that, are we even in a position where we have enough staff or the right technology to be tracking whether this is this is um, someone's engaging or not engaging, if it's going well or not. And then we have the, the staff to then do the reporting. A whole lot of things there, I think that are um, up in the air and we are awaiting this next bill. Yeah. I, I personally see gaps around what are the specific services? Let's not leave it amb uh, ambiguous. Uh, how much freedom is there for universities to tailor the services, how they see best to their culture, to their purpose, and, and what's this reporting look like? Is it how frequent, um, you know, is it every week? Is it every quarter? Is it once a semester? And how do these fines then actually work on the back end? That's what I'm really curious about right now. But I would just say, I would just say, it sounds like a lot of headaches and I know there's a lot of fear going out uh, in the market at the moment about, about this. And outside of that, I think there's just a lot of opportunity. You know, I think 
because of the way student support experience and social experience at university has evolved over the years, I think it, it's lacked a little bit of love, uh, particularly from, you know, IT departments and digital strategy departments. And for better or worse, um, now I think it's going to have to come up the priority. And I think student support is going to see some, some love and some big intentional um, digital strategy. I'm, I'm really excited to see what universities come up with here. Look, I'll, I'll jump in, Ben. And I certainly, you know, like, yes, all of the above. Um, and I certainly um, see both the challenges and the opportunities um, in what is being proposed. Um, I do also I have some sympathy, you know, for the voices who say, you know, who's the government telling universities how to do our business, you know, and, and really getting students to pass the units they enrolled in is the core business of universities, right? So I, I also... Um, get that. And I think what we have to recognize is that we're starting from a position of great variation of approaches across the sector when it comes to student support. And you've spoken to, you've, you know, like raised that Ben is there's different cultures, there's different ways of operating, you know, like some more lined up um, and efficient and integrated from a student perspective than others. Um, and, and, you know, like lots of implementation challenges. So I think it is not that there isn't um, in university leadership a desire to have a much more lined up and much more integrated and much more, you know, just in time um, support system for our students. It's it's just that we are not starting from, from a greenfield side, right? Like there's legacy arrangements, there's cultures around this, there's, you know, like professional expertise and identity, you know, like in the staff members delivering these services, like this is not an easy challenge. And I think, you know, like when, when we are thinking about best practice, you know, some of the best practice um, in this space I've seen um, at Swinburne is with the partnership with OES, mm -hmm. right? And we are not starting from scratch, you know, like we are, you know, we, we have to start where we are. And, um, you know, I really hope that putting a bit of a blowtorch on this, on this, um, you know, like this parcel of work that is a student support ecosystem um, and, and to really force a bit of a shift on universities to go, we're not waiting until the student has found, we're actually intervening a lot earlier and as live as possible is a good thing. And we'll focus, you know, like attention in, in a space um, that is really right for it, that will benefit from really strong leadership, you know, like from DVCs and PVCs, you know, like really rallying the troops to go, we cannot, we can no longer operate in silos. We can no longer operate on true strings. We need some proper tech or some lined up tech. So I, I really also see, I'm with Ben and I really see the opportunities in, in connecting some really important dots here. It's a little bit timely with other things going on in the world as well. You know, this year, I think most universities in Australia were, have already been focusing pretty heavily on cost reductions and cost efficiencies and I would, I would really push that this actually, the work that could be required here actually isn't, is, doesn't um, contradict that. It might seem like, oh, now we have to go back and spend all this, this money we didn't want to spend back here, but it, it actually it doesn't have to be that way. I think there are, because of that siloed nature, there are lots of efficiencies to be gained um, and from this part of the world, which hasn't had a lot of attention. I think on top of that, the other sort of macro trend is, you know, as put into the accord, everybody's preparing for more students, scalability and efficiency. So it's not just about the amount of students we have and the efficiency of those services. It's about how do we do this with twice as many students as the government said in the, uh, in the accord. So I think this is a chance to, to revamp and prepare for that. But on top of that, 
with with generative AI and um, anyone who knows me is probably sick of me talking about this, but with everything that's coming out in that world and some of the things that we've seen happen in America already that really fringe on university student support, like what's happened with Chegg uh, over there, there are going to be some pretty major implications of and possibilities that Gen AI opens up on the operational and support service side of things. And I think clicking into this now or clicking into this over the next six to 12 months will actually allow the university to, in the student support world, get on the front foot and adopt some of the really awesome potential that will be coming from Gen AI over the next six months, such as, I mean, I see this in the support amendment bill, an opportunity for you know, an AI concierge for students. So, you know, my personal opinion, Gen AI should never act as if it has empathy. Uh, it should never replace a human. That's nice. not its job. Uh, we should never you know, make students believe they're talking to somebody when they're actually talking to a chatbot. That's not the right move at all. But certainly with this, what the bill is talking about proactively uh, supporting students, proactively connecting students to the right services at the right time, perfect use case of, of uh, generative AI. Um, you know, and on the back, on the other side of it, as universities think about these services and how could they scale if they're delivering it from, from scratch or if it exists, but they need to do it at a kind of different level. The opportunity for Gen AI to actually co-pilot alongside the supporters and help them better communicate and understand their students that they are supporting and apply better and more timely support. So I, I think it's, it is hitting at a time where we're probably going to need to do this anyway, uh, yeah. revamp this sort of um, opinion. But I, I do want to quickly throw to, to Martin on that leadership front where you were uh, ending up there, Nadine, about, you know, what, what do our leaders need to be thinking about what from a strategic side of things about helping their institutions navigate this next period, Martin, and, and how does that compare to best practice that you've seen, particularly with your Leadership Agenda book and all the interviews you've done? Yeah, th thanks, Ben, and, and thanks to Dean. I think this is really a, a vitally important issue alongside all of the ones that you've described. I mean, we have so much talk about the student experience being paramount and supporting our students being important to our institutions, but I'm not sure the walking of that talk has lived up to its promise up until now. I think this is an enormously important time for leaders of our sector to, to demonstrate that they mean what they say. And, and I, think, I think we should get to a position where the demonstration of commitment and purpose and the building of culture and the um, prioritization of resources can really make a difference. And I've seen some fabulous examples of that from different people I've interviewed for my podcast around the world. I, I interviewed Ian Dunn, the provost of Coventry University, who their approach to integrated tech and very clear strategy on this on this space has been interesting. There are some classic US examples that we've all heard of before, but visiting Michael Crow and all of the people at Ed Plus and all of the provosts and other people, Nancy and the other people at, at Arizona State University, I, I must have encountered about 40 or 50 people on that day on that visit, and I couldn't find one person who didn't both know and wasn't prepared to, to speak the charter of the institution of being we measure ourselves by who we include, not how who we exclude, and how we support them to succeed. It's a 20-year-old charter in the institution from when Michael first arrived there. 
that everyone knows and believes. Everyone knows that he believes it and everyone knows it's where the place is going. And, and the last example I'd quote is another quite well-known one of a person that I think shows extraordinary commitment and leadership to putting students first. It's the title of his great book or one of his two great books. The other one talks about our public service systems being broken. And he's the president of Southern New Hampshire University in the United States. I think you've interviewed him recently too, Ben, in Paul LeBlanc, who has built a very large-scaled university over a very short space of time that has a relentless focus on fulfilling its purpose of giving students from equity backgrounds an experience where they succeed. And I, I see absolutely no reason and every opportunity of Australian university leaders committing to exactly that same clarity of purpose, culture and strategy in the period ahead. And look, it's great to be doing this first of, of two webinars today. We're looking forward to a follow up on September the 19th, where we hope to get some of the leaders of our universities in on this conversation and just see exactly what they feel their role is and what commitment they look to make. Mm. Um, so thanks for asking me that. And with an eye on the clock, without without wanting to have the last word, I'll invite the two of you to have the next words and then invite our webinar participants maybe to have the last words with us with some questions that I think you and I can see are already starting to appear there. But um, in summing up, where we've got to in this conversation that's an ongoing one. I mean, Nadine, if I turn to you first, you've talked a little bit about best practice and I've quoted some um, international examples. You were just talking about Swinburne, but are there other characteristics of best practice in Australia that you've been exposed to? And what, what specific things that you think Australian universities should do next that you can give us takeaways for our audience today? Yeah. Um, thanks, Martin. Look, um, one of the key conversations that we're talking about is personalization. Personalization of the student experience and, you know, of, of student support arrangements. Um, and there's very different, again, variation is, is, the, is the term here. There's very different interpretations of what personalization means. Um, part of the conversation that I'm trying to drive is let's think about cohorts, you know, let's think about um, our student, you know, our really diverse student cohorts in from the perspective of archetypes, you know, and of how sort of how students approach the university experience, you know, how central is it in their lives, or how many other things are going on in their lives. Um, where are they in their career progress? What's their motivation to seek university? How, what are their preferences for, for engagement? Again, you know, like at no point, and, and Ben, I really like your idea of generative AI in that space, you know, at no point do we ask our students, how would you like to be engaged? You know, what's your preferred method for communication? You know, is it email? Do you want phone calls? Do you want text messages? You know, do you want push notifications? You know, how how would you like to be engaged, right? We're, we're not asking that at no point in time. So I think we need to find ways to chunk, you know, our really, really large student cohorts. You know, we, we know that, you know, um, university, Australian universities are large by international comparison. So it is really around how you know how do we approach this elephant and how do we chunk it um in into bite-sized pieces you know that we can take off and and um work with 
I guess in many ways, the holy grail is, is live tracking of students and then just-in-time service provision. Um, and again, some places do this. You've asked for best, best practice. Some places do this really well. Um, Charles Sturt University has done a lot through their learning management system, you know, has done a lot through consistent early formative assessment, you know, that then triggers non-submission of failure, triggers a support process and a proactive reaching out. You know, so there's people in the sector who do this really well. Um, with Ben, you know, like we talked about how do you track service use and what are the key points in your onboarding process that you want to track that can become flags, you know, in, in a student's, um, you know, onboarding journey that then become um, signs of disengagement, you know, so I think that is really where it needs to go at the institutional level, we need to have processes and systems that show us in real time when students are starting to disengage and then starting to struggle and we need places of interventions that that, that are, are me mechanisms of interventions that kick into place that's the institutional level but I also think we need to ask the bigger questions of why are students failing in the first place and one of them is because they have very very busy lives and because student poverty is real so the the um role for the government here is income support you know like we have talked a bit about the gaps in the accord process and it's not that it's not there but it's not sufficiently prominent you know we're talking about the appropriateness of job keeper you know of, of those payments but we need to talk about the appropriateness of income support for students and one of the reasons why there's such high failure amongst um, equity group students is because they have to enroll in at least three units to maintain their Centrelink payments and many students say okay I'll drop this third unit because I know I can't do it but I'm going to I'm going to lose my support if I'm not enrolled in three units so it really puts students into a tie. So we need to do something around um, um, income support. And the final bit for the for the government, and that is the generational, um, you know, approach. This is really the view out to 2050, is around academic preparedness. And by the time students come to university, it's very late in the piece. You know, the intervention has to be in early learning, in primary and secondary schooling, you know. And again, the minister is on that journey. He understands the challenge. But for him, it is really going to be about lining up all of these pieces, you know, like across across the person's life cycle and the opportunity for him to address disadvantage as it accrues along the life cycle. So to me, they, they are really sort of there's an institutional dimension here, but there's also a government and societal intervention um, that needs to happen if we want to get to these numbers, if we want to hit these targets. That's a great sum up, Nadine. Thank you very much for that. And Ben, do you want to add a few closing words before you start to field the, and manage the questions for us that are starting to come in? My encouragement would be to let's see this as an opportunity uh, and try not to be driven too much by uh, fear. The To leaders, my encouragement would be let's get deliberate about the social experience of our, of our systems and let's get deliberate about uh, setting a strategy for the uh, you know, a timely uh, upgrade of those systems. And I think to the government, I would my encouragement would be, let's make this a safe and friendly space for everybody where everybody feels comfortable turning the lights on and having some honest conversations about how are our support systems and our social experiences, where are we really at? And so let's have a bit of a grace period and let's 
I think out of that, we'll all be able to come to this a little bit more, um, more above the line um, and see more opportunity and more innovatively and create some really interesting purpose-driven uh, social support systems and you know, ultimately save ourselves uh, a lot of headaches, save ourselves a lot of money, uh, and most importantly, save a bunch of new students. That's a pretty important goal to seek and to keep top of mind, isn't it? Um, whether they're called Tony or whoever they're called, they're what drive <laughs> us to really focus on the human dimension of every single one of our students and how we all have a responsibility and now a great, great need and opportunity to have that as a focus. Ben, we, we might take that as a segue to field some of the, the questions coming in and continue to encourage a little bit more. Do you want to tell us what you're seeing there in the questions and think yes. about who's best place to answer them? Anna has posted a few here. Let's go with the first one. How do you see the interaction between these new requirements in HESA and uni requirements under threshold standards? This is, this is not new. So if anything, it is it is strengthening what is already there. And I think it sort of, it, it puts the enforcement of the standards, you know, squarely um, in view, you know, and potentially reminds um, everybody in this space, you know, like that the thresholds are there, they're real, they're, they're meant to be followed, right? Um, so if anything, it sort of, it, it gives an opportunity um, and the minister has spoken to this, you know, to revisit um, the standards to see if they are sufficiently uh, descriptive and then really a focus on enforcement of standards. So I, I can't see a conflict between the standards and what is being proposed. If anything, it's, you know, it's an opportunity to have another look at them and tighten what is. Mm, and maybe I'll, I'll add to that. I also, you know, with the standards, I think I think Texa and the um, review processes. I think they've sort of avoided this student support world, uh, intentionally or not intentionally, to date. And I think there are some interesting things that we're going to have to turn the lights on and just face about compliance, particularly around accessibility compliance, where student support has evolved um, digitally. I don't think it a lot. I would say I would, I would argue about 80% of existing Australian higher education student support probably doesn't meet the minimum web accessibility content guidelines that um, that is in the thresholds and similar thing around data security and privacy as well. I, I privacy um, compliance evolves a lot uh, globally all the time every year and I don't currently see our support world also keeping um, on top of that everybody's you know, doing different things. And so I, I, I do expect a bit more focus uh, on student support and I do expect uh, accessibility and data security uh, and privacy to actually come up a fair bit over the next uh, years or coming years. Agreed. Keep up the rage. <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's great. The more accessible our services are, that's, that's better for everybody. Absolutely everybody. And it's, it's actually not too hard these days. Um, you just have to be deliberate. All right. Another another question, we will flip over to Grant Jones. So will the reporting obligations apply to non-table A providers? If not, do you expect that Texa will put pressure for compliance directly onto those institutions? I don't have that level of technical expertise, so this is my best guess here. Um, at the moment, it is, it is talking about higher education provider, and my reading of this is table A providers. Um, but do not take my word for it. You know, like I, that needs a level of technical expertise of the HISA, which I don't pretend to have. 
Sorry, Grant. I, and I would agree that there's a bit of um, ambiguity uh, around around that ambiguity about which exact student cohorts this applies to or doesn't apply to. You know, I'd be really interested if this applies as well to international students as well, and some of the reporting and support for student plans and all of that. That was a whole nother can of worms. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot that Jason, Claire and the minister's office needs to clear up over the coming weeks for sure. Yeah, but yeah there's a lot we don't know, isn't there? And um, just noting one comment as much of a question in there from Belinda Tynan too. Um, there is a lot that we don't know and we'll get a lot more clarification once the discussion paper and further aspects of the legislation are released. But for goodness sake, if you can't sniff the breeze about where this is heading, if you can't see that people mean it, if you can't see that you need to do something, if you can't see that there is an alignment here coming between grand intentions, the sector's feeling of itself, the existing guidelines and new legislation, then you're really you're really missing the point, aren't you? Um, so I, I, I think to wait until we know everything before we do anything would be a huge mistake. And to take take the the sectoral and the institutional commitment to move in this space and make this a priority filling in the details as they become uh, become more obvious seems to be the only way forward that place that institutions have followed to me mm -hmm. i agree i mean, i was even speaking to a university yesterday that has had a priority on updating its student support technology for the last 4 years it's been on the its uh, procurement uh, list, uh, but every single year it's it's actually been um, deprioritized. Four years running, four years running, something else has come up, and they've, you know. So I, I think it's time to for those projects to actually stay in the in the P one P one list. And my, Michael Burgess, uh, thank you for putting in a question, mate. You took you took the challenge. Uh, how do we break this nexus of everyone saying the right thing but not delivering anything of meaningful change? The system is designed against this, and the current models too entrenched true transformational it's hard true transformation it's hard does anybody want to respond to that one i'll, I'll have a go at that one it's 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 a bit of a bugbear of mine actually that I, I i love the accord i love the interim report i think it makes exactly the right long-term vision i think it's got some good short-term priorities i think it's got too many with a bun fight emerging around its um 70 odd proposals but for me the biggest missing piece is that it's got other headlines beyond delivering growth through equity of transformational change and new providers and new pedagogies and new ways of delivering education for the future over a 25-year horizon and not enough pointers to how we are going to support and encourage innovation and keep that continuous focus on innovation on our sector as it stands at the moment and as our sector as it will emerge into the future. And my submission to a second stage of the um, accord process and what I'd encourage us all to focus on is let's not hold back from getting on with stuff now, but let's make sure we build in a future capacity and capability for continuous innovation. Otherwise, we'll just be in another different mess in a couple of years down the track. Mm. And and um, I will, I'll, I'll, ex I'll extend our period, you know, thank you for everybody for attending if you have to drop off, but we're going to have just an extra one more question. I've just seen a great one come in from the amazing uh, Robin Latimer uh, from Torrens. And I think Nadine, you're going to love this. Uh, so uh, a challenge we all have is overwhelmed with too many supports needed in the first study period. Should we be looking to redesign study readiness 
as a pre-study period. Brackets also funded to allow STDTS to engage, or students. <laughs> uh, we, th we throw <laughs> students into subjects and expect them to access, uh, access supports at the same time as tackling subjects, transitioning to uni life, et cetera. Yeah, look, um, I think enabling pro programs are definitely having their moment in the sun, you know, like they have been, they got almost eradicated a few um, reform <laughs> efforts ago, but it, it's just so obvious now, you know, like what an important role they play, you know, in preparing students um, for higher education to really give them a, a, a taste of what it is like and then be build their skills before they come into an undergraduate program. Um, so again, big fan, we need more and proper funding and sustainability of enabling programs. Um, There's so many colleagues who do this amazingly well. Um, NIA is the professional organization, um, very ably um, led by um, Karen Siri, you know, like, so they, they really, there is really great practice in this space and we should all take note if we, if we don't know about it. But there's also this, um, and again, our colleagues at Wollongong are really on this journey to say orientation is not just one week. Right. Like it's not just we we give students all of the information at one point in time and then walk away. You know, like it is it is a it's a uh, it's a process, you know, like it's not just the first study period. It's the first year, you know, of engagement. So we, we are also looking in other places. We had the conversation of do we need to revisit transition pedagogy, you know, which is Sally Kift's, you know, concept of embedding service provision and sort of key um skill building into the curriculum you know like and we really do this across the first year um speaking to michael's earlier point around innovation there is so much so many things we could do so many different you know ways we could um we could um skin this particular cat right it's but we we need the bravery we need the institutional leadership we need sort of the the sense of let's let's have a go at this and let's try what will what will work in our context you know for some people it's going to be more preparation before students come in for others you know who have very diverse cohorts it might very well be you know a common first year that draws on principles of transition pedagogy you know to to speak to the point that um it's a process it's not a one point in time and off you mm. go and and maybe i would also add to it that i think Every, every student is so unique and you know, who knows what they, what life experiences are going to go, uh, they're going to have during university. So I think we need the breadth of these services. And I think we, then in each service, we need the breadth of personalization, uh, of delivery and methods of delivery and modes of delivery, all that in each service. So I think we need this breadth, but when it, you, you know, I do agree that it can get so overwhelming for a student on the way in. And I, I think particularly with if services are running in silos and everybody has a, you know, a marketing agenda of come here and remember this and here's this and log into that and register for this over here and blah, 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 blah. I think that is not the right approach. I think there is an opportunity here to uh, make it more of a one university type approach to the support. So it's not all these silos we're trying to help students uh, remember. So I think it's about one space. And I think what I would encourage is one prioritize one program at the very beginning one program that unlocks the others you know i typically recommend peer mentoring uh you know having someone who knows your okay. name who looks like you and thinks like you i think that's one of the best initial connections that you can make for a student and then let that peer mentor help the student navigate the rest of the ecosystem as well but you can also sub out that peer mentor for a success coach or maybe what the bill is saying an academic development advisor uh, advisor so one approach, 
and prioritize one program. Hey, and look, that's been a fabulous session, everybody. We've had some um, covering a lot of ground in a limited amount of time. Great engagement by our participants in the webinar. Thank you very much, Nadine, for joining us and persevering with some technology challenge. Sorry. And Ben, a real pleasure for me from within HEDEX to partner with you in Vigo on this webinar and this program of work. But look, Ben, since the uh, webinar, there's been some updates in the minister's position. There's been a discussion paper and consultation paper issued. Why don't you just update our listeners as we close out this episode with um, some of the unanswered questions in the webinar itself and what we now know about the consultation around the support amendment bill. Very shortly after this webinar, the minister released the consultation paper, which we are talking about in this webinar. We did expect it a week before this webinar, but it was a little bit late. So that consultation paper came out just a bit later that day. And it's really confirmed a few things that were still up in the air and that the panel discusses. So the first thing that it discusses is uh, it proposes that the support for students policies become mandatory for teaching period one, 2024. No one really saw it coming that quickly. So for some providers that could mean as early as January, 2024, but you know, for most providers by at least by March next year, it proposes that the new requirements around student support, they appear to be extended to all students, not just Commonwealth supported places. It also confirms that non-compliance fines which are roughly about $19,000 can be applied per student, not in all cases, but in some cases. And it also says that threshold standards apply to all higher education providers. So there was a question you'll see at the end by Grant who was asking this. And yes, it does extend to all providers, table A, table B and others. Then the other key event that has happened in the following week is that the education minister, Jason Clare, spoke at the AFR Higher Education Conference down in Melbourne. Really, there was no new information introduced in Jason's speeches and question time, but he did really emphasize that the government wants feedback and healthy debate on everything that has been put out. And those are the really the key updates. If you would like to check out other updates, there is this link down below, tinyurl.com slash he accord 2023 well thanks very much for those updates ben thank you for being a great co-host with us on the headex podcast today it's been fascinating to dig into the issues around support for students and how critical they are to achieving our equity agenda but that's all we've got time for on headex today 